Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, the Adam Hawkins. Adam, how you doing today, buddy? Doing great, man. Good. On this episode, we're going to have a conversation with New York Times columnist, author David Brooks. Adam, have you ever heard of David Brooks before? I've heard of David Brooks. I've read a couple of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever read his column? I have read his column. I'm, I don't know about you. Yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'll tell you, coming into this, I was nervous. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Not because I'm nervous about how it will go. I'm just nervous going for David Brooks. He's a very, very intelligent man. Yeah. Very, very sharp. And part of the reason I'm looking forward to this episode and you listening to it, listeners at home, is that this new book, The Second Mountain, it's really, it's really brilliant. It's well written and it's a great book. So you're gonna enjoy this interview with David Brooks. Well, today we're having a conversation with David Brooks. David's a renowned cultural commentator. He has an incredible column at the New York Times. He's also an accomplished author. He's written a number of books, including Bobos in Paradise, On Paradise Drive, The Social Animal, The Road to Character, and his latest we're going to be talking about today, The Second Mountain, which we're talking about right now with the Mr. David Brooks. David, thank you so much for being with us today. So good to be with you. Well, it's fantastic to have you here. At the the new book, The Second Mountain, it's essentially uh, it's drawing on your life, wisdom of other people you've read or or interacted with, and talking about kind of a first mountain of our culture right now of individualism and self gratification, where people try to accomplish and and reach the summit and maybe get momentary happiness, but that maybe it leaves you ultimately unfulfilled and alienated. You talk about the valley, about uh, suffering, and about how that awakens us to a second mountain that gives ourselves, uh, we can give ourselves over to love and to serve others, to joy, to peace. And uh, that's kind of my brief summary. You wrote the book. Can you elaborate on a little bit? What is this book about? Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of us get out of school and we think we have uh, a mountain we're going to climb, which we're going to build our career, and we care a lot about reputation management. Uh, and then one of three things happens. Sometimes we reach our success and we find it unsatisfying. It doesn't fill the soul, and that's sort of what I found. Or some people fail and they, they're not climbing the mountain anymore. And some people have something happen that wasn't part of the original plan. They um, suffer a cancer scare or the loss of a child or something terrible. But either of those three ways, you're in the valley. And in my view, your life is defined by how you respond to being in the valley. And some people get broken, and they turn nasty and and sour, and they lash out, and they get defensive. But some people in the valley, they they get more vulnerable. They realize that the desires of the first mountain were pathetically small, uh, and they get in touch with their heart and their soul, and they realize there's a much bigger journey to be had. And the second mountain is about contribution, not acquisition, it's not about climbing up. It's about handing back. It's about trying to live a life that um, you can be proud of and that celebrates some ultimate good. And so on the first mountain, our ultimate allegiance to our, is to ourselves. And to our, on our second mountain, our ultimate allegiance is to those things we love, our, a God, a, a family, a community, and a vocation. Uh, I'm fascinated by the idea of both this first and second mountain, the the commentary it has both on our lives personally, but but then sort of collectively as well. And, um, you know, as I've thought about it, there's nothing 
innate that says that the first mountain has to be about being maybe self-centered or individualism or or something like that. It seems to be wh- wh- where our culture is now. Could you talk a little bit, possibly, you do a great job of this in the book, but you, could you talk a little bit about maybe the problems that culturally we're facing that might lead us to think, well, we could, we could find uh, happiness on this first mountain? Yeah, well, our culture has a lot of great features, but it also has a lot of lies embedded in it. One of them is that career success makes you fulfilled. Mm. And I can assure you that's not the case. I've had way more career success, but it doesn't fill the soul. Mm. Uh, the second lie is that I can make myself happy. And this is the lie of self-sufficiency, that if I make more, get good at yoga, lose 15 pounds, then I'll be happy. But if you talk to people on their deathbed, they never talk about the self-sufficient moments when they're happy. They talk about the moments when they defeated self-sufficiency, when they were utterly dependent on somebody else and somebody else was utterly dependent on them, when they were at their moment, moment of deepest vulnerability and relationship. And another lie is life is an individual journey. Sometimes in um, commencement days, we give our kids this book, Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's about an individual kid going through a series of individual experiences on the way to success. That kid has no friends. It has no family. And that's not life. And somebody did a study of how immigrant kids react to that book. They don't like that book because that's not how they see life. To them, life is about being connected to family and friends, and it's about attachment. And so we just have a culture that's super individualistic. And when you practice that culture, and when you make it all about merit and achievement, that yourself is not a soul to be saved, but a set of skills to be maximized, you're leading people off on the wrong set of values. And I think our culture pushes people in that direction. And all I can say is it pushed me in that direction. I sort of floated along with the culture and found myself in a ditch. And I finally realized when I was in the valley of my life that I had to reject the culture around me and, and find a different set of values to live by. What's fascinating to me is that the, the really you're hitting on something that is, I think, is, is a real problem today uh, uh, within our culture. You just explained it. And um, you write in, in such a winsome way, in a way that is uh, maybe maybe not uh, directly confrontational, but uh, what you're saying is actually very countercultural in this book. You, you talk about, uh, you know, maybe our culture is about building up the self, but really what this second mountain is and what leads to joy is losing ourselves, is sort of shedding ourselves of this uh, self-importance and realizing that when you attach your, yourself to something bigger than just you and your own story, uh, that there's that joy can be had. Um, have you faced, I, I don't know, I, I, as I've watched uh, some interviews and listened to some interviews, um, I've been shocked by, I don't know, how, how much people just seem to agree with you. And I'm, I'm curious if you've faced backlash over it, because really the culture is screaming the opposite at us, you know? Yeah, some people don't like it when you talk about um, words like soul and grace yes. and even morality. They think, oh, you're just being moralistic, you're trying to be judgmental. And they just react against all that stuff. And then sometimes people react in a way that's just sort of crude. I I confess I've made myself vulnerable in the book, and I've revealed things about my life and flaws in my life and bad periods in my life. And frankly, I didn't do that in the first draft of my book, but somebody, a friend who read it, said, you got to put yourself in the book. It's a book about, you know, relationship, how we actually do relationship. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable and be real to the reader, then what are you really talking about? Mm. And so I... I put myself in the book, and I, I put my lowest moments in the book. And sometimes your enemies and sometimes political enemies will use your vulnerability to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And some people have done that. 
And then sometimes they just handle you with um, sort of like boxing gloves. They're just crude. And there's a book in, there's a chapter in the book on my faith journey, how I came to faith. Yeah. And that to me felt like a process that was very mysterious and, and ineffable and sort of uh, very spiritual and very delicate. And so some people not being meaning to be hostile treat coming to faith as if you're, it's like coming to the Republican Party. Oh, I adopted a bunch of policies, mm. and I joined this team. And that really was more painful than I expected it to be, because it wasn't like the person was trying to hurt me. It just, I felt I, I, I wasn't being respected or heard somehow, because to me the journey of faith is a very complicated uh, journey of, it sort of happens to you as much as you're in charge of it. Yeah, I want to talk more about that process here in just a minute, because I think that is one of the most fascinating aspects of this book, and I'm glad your friends uh, encouraged you in that to, to share your story in it. I think one of, the, one of the good and maybe prime examples of the vulnerability in this book of how things have changed incrementally and slowly for you, gradually, is you talk a little about in this book about how you look back on, on the book you wrote on character not long ago and how differently now you would look at some of the same things. Can you talk a little bit about sharing uh, the change and maybe knowing that like your thoughts are out there, but now you're in a little bit of a different place? What was that like to, to share something that's not really a follow-up? It's like a complete change of direction for you. Yeah, you know, we write books when we're on a particular spot on the journey, and that's true for all of us when just in conversation. And I wrote, I wrote about people I really admired in The Road to Character, and I still really admire them, and I think we have a lot to learn from them. Uh, people like Dorothy Day or George Marshall or Dwight Eisenhower or St. Augustine. Uh, but the way I looked at their lives, I thought, you know how they did it? They, they identified their core sin, and they sort of worked on it, like... Mm-hmm. For Eisenhower, it was his anger, and he was a really angry person. And so every day he would try to say, how am I going to defeat my anger? So it was about self-defeat. And you know, I, when I finished the book, after the book came out, I realized something. You know, all the characters in my book had amazing mothers. Hmm. Their dads were kind of eh, but their moms really poured love into them. And so they knew how to receive and give love. And then I thought about, you know what? Most people who try to have a New Year's resolution and they're going to use their willpower to become better people, it just doesn't work. Our, our willpower is not strong. We know what to do. We just are not motivated enough to do it. So I focus on desire. And now I think, and in this book, I, I try to argue that we become better by falling in love with things and serving those things. So, for example, when my oldest son was born, he had a super low APGAR score. And I... Uh, I didn't know what would happen to him, and I had a thought, well, what happens if he dies in 30 minutes? Will it be worth a lifetime of grief for his mother and I? And before he was born, I would have thought, no way, how could that be worth it? But after he was born, I became aware of a level of commitment and love that I couldn't even imagine before the kid was born. And once you're gripped by that kind of love, you want to make promises, you want to be there for the kid, um, you want to, you know, maybe secretly you want to go play golf, but instead you you got to care for your child. Mm. And I think it's the things we love that draw us to being slightly less selfish than we would otherwise be. Uh, when um, I have a friend, she said when her first daughter was born, she realized she loved her more than evolution required. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that phrase because it suggests there's an extra level of care in us that's not, frankly, not there in other animals. It's a, a level of magical enchantment uh, in our love that um, is the saving grace of life, and it, it makes us better. 
Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about in the sacredness and in the soul and even grace and words like that that you've used already in this and you use a lot in your book, they they align a lot with um, you know this is a this is a Christian podcast. It's a it's a church that we we do this work with, and and a lot of what I read in there resonated a lot with what I've read in the Bible and what I've grown up believing about what my call is to to deny myself, to die to self, to find joy in serving. And have you found that your faith journey, your personal faith journey, is part of what fed into this, or is it was it learning tenets of Christianity? Was it growing in following Christ that? influence that? Or do you feel like it just, that progression happened intellectually in a way that you realize later, man, this is, this is aligning with, with a, with a Christian idea. Yeah, I think, I definitely think it was aligning. Though I will say, you know, I have chapters on like how to pick a vocation or how to, yeah. how to make your marriage healthy. And in those chapters or how to survive a downturn in your life, I find myself, and I'm, I don't make explicit reference to faith in some of those chapters, but I find myself quoting Henry Nowen or Tim Keller or or people like that, just because there's wisdom there. Yeah. Uh, and I do think um, the Christian look and the Christian outlook on the world is not only you know true and, and points to something eternal, but it's just useful. You know, when I was um, first became a columnist at the New York Times, uh, I it was a very hard period for me because. I'd never been hated on a mass scale before. I was more conservative than most New York Times readers. And they sent me just tons of really nasty emails, hundreds of thousands of them. And I would read them, and it would really get inside me, and I would suffer. And And I think, how do I deal with this? And the only way you could deal with it is, is love your enemies. That was the only way I could deal with it, to, to mm. treat these people who were writing nasty things about me as somehow those offering me gifts yeah. uh, and to be grateful for those gifts. And so this actually didn't require faith in Jesus or anything. It was just like a smart way to live. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's just an inherent wisdom in a lot of this stuff, aside from the, the divine uh, spark. Yeah, I, I, um, you, you mentioned something there that I did want to ask you about, because um, when you were first writing for, for the New York Times, when you were calling this there, um, you've been known sort of maybe as a cultural or political commentator. Uh, but as I've read more and more of your stuff lately, you seem to focus on ethics or morality. You talk a lot in this book about a moral joy. And I'm wondering is, uh, uh, are these things that can help us address, can you marry the two? Are these things that can help us address the division and chaos of the current political climate? Yeah, I think we're over-politicized and under-moralized. So we talk about politics too much and we make politics our idol as if it's going to be the key of our identity and the key to the way we serve good. And that's asking politics to bear more than it can. And so we turn our political affiliation into a tribe, and then we just attack the other tribe. We can never compromise because it would be dishonor. And in my view, our politics is so nasty because our relationships with each other are so weak. Mm. And the government and the market are important institutions, but they rely on a more fundamental institution, and that is the level of trust between us that there is a basic foundation of our relationships and how we relate to each other in the world. And if we have anger and bitterness and distrust between us at the foundation of society, then the market is going to turn savage and then politics is going to turn nasty. And to me, our core problem in America is at the level of trust, just how we treat one another. A generation ago, if you ask people, do you trust your neighbors? 60% of Americans said, yeah, the people around me are trustworthy. But now it's only 32% and 19% of millennials. The younger you go, the more distrust 
there is. So if we live in a society pervaded by hostility and distrust, a lot of other things are going to happen bad. And so a lot of what we have to do is learn to see each other better and learn to love each other better. And that's, um, you know, that's foundational to the Beatitudes. That's, that's, um, that's a, that's a, a process that's emotional and spiritual more than it's political. One of the beautiful, I think, storylines in this book, and maybe storyline's not the right word, but the place that suffering plays in the journey that you point to somebody to the second mountain, the the place that uh, suffering plays in helping awaken somebody to joy and becoming other-centered. Can you speak on that for just a minute? I, I love the way you described um, the, the role that suffering can play in changing someone's life. Yeah, and I don't romanticize suffering. Sometimes it's just Sure. If you're suffering, it's just best to stop yeah, if you can and get sure. out of it. But, you know, I read a phrase from Henry Allen that really struck me with force when I first read it and I rejected it. He, he said, sometimes you have to stay in the pain and learn what it has to teach you. And, you know, Lewis says pain is a foghorn. And the, the thing I've learned in the valley of life is that you can either be broken or you can be broken open. And a lot of people get broken by pain. They sort of cover themselves over. They make themselves invulnerable. They get resentful. They lash out. There's a phrase that I love, which is pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. If you don't really deal with your pain or avoid in yourself, you're going to lash out and spread pain around to the people around you. But other people get broken open. And I'm an admirer of a 1950s theologian named Paul Tillich who said those moments of suffering we go through interrupt life and they remind us we're not the people we thought we were. They carve through the floor of what you thought was the basement of your soul and they reveal a cavity below, and they carve through that and reveal a cavity below. So you just see more deeply into yourself. And when you see that deep into yourself, you realize that only spiritual and emotional food will um, solve or will fill those voids. And so you reorient what you care about, and you you just want to find out where can I get that spiritual and emotional food. And, And you're at that moment of vulnerability, you're ready for your second mountain. You talk about that exact experience with a vulnerability that it will there's an authenticity to it you talk about others experiences of of the valley times but um just uh your ability to be vulnerable about your own story i guess what i would say is it it uh just the way you described that process um it's obvious that you've been there and i'm curious if you'd tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in the valley well, I was just living by bad values. And one of the values I was living by was, you know, I'm a newspaper person, so I have a lot of deadlines. Yeah. And so I always had a deadline, and I put the deadlines. And so there was like a little internal clock in my head. Mm. Uh, always get stuff done. Be productive. Be productive. And so when you've got this time clock in your head that's going so fast, move on to the next task. You don't have time just to pause and be with people and really build relationships. Uh, and so once my kids had gone off or were going off to college, uh, that, that sort of relationship was out of my life, which was a very joyous one. And my marriage had ended and, uh, I was, I had weekday friends, like professional friends who I could talk about work with, but I didn't really have weekend friends. Um, the kind you do life with, I think I'd spent all my weekends with my kids. So there was just voids in my life. And like any idiot, I tried to solve it by working hard and becoming a workaholic. And so I just, you know, I say that if you went to my apartment, uh, I never entertained and stuff like that. So I just, if you went to the drawer where there should have been kitchen utensils, there was just post-it notes. 
just stuff I needed for work. Mm. And that, to me, was a symbol of a life poorly lived, poorly oriented, not toward relationship, not toward some higher value, but just toward getting the job done. And my job was very fulfilling to me, but it wasn't fulfilling. It was about as good a job as you can have, and it's still not quite fulfilling. And I was really inspired by um, uh, Leo Tolstoy, who, like, if you're a writer, like, he achieved the dream. He's written one of the greatest writers of all time, wrote these masterpieces, War and Peace. I mean, if anybody, ever anybody had a good first mountain, it was Tolstoy. (laughs) And yet... (laughs) And his brother died. He couldn't explain why his brother lived and died. And then he saw an execution, a beheading, and he realized, well, that's wrong. There's some eternal law of truth. And I've been living my life according to getting people's popularity. I haven't been living it according to the law of truth. And Tolstoy entered the valley. He went into a deep depression. He kept all guns and ropes away from him so he wouldn't kill himself. And then he finally learned, well, Maybe I've I've been using my reason to try to solve all the problems of life, but there's a different way of knowing, which is faith. And so he he discovered faith when he was down in the valley, and the second half of his life was very different. So speaking of that, for for the Christian listening, for someone who is a person of faith, what does it look like for somebody like that to cultivate this kind of kingdom life, to pursue the second mountain? What would you advise them? I mean, you, you don't advise us to seek suffering. Hey, look for a way to just break your life apart. So how does somebody, yeah. how does somebody seek the second mountain? Well, I do think um, I had a, a student come up to me and said, you know, I haven't really suffered enough. Should I go out and find some suffering? <laughs> I was like, yeah, don't worry. It'll, it'll find you. Um, you know, I do think, and this is something I think is disappointing to me, but, uh, you know, People of faith, and now that I'm sort of in the community, we, we spend a lot of time talking about holiness and virtue and grace and love. You'd think the level of behavior would be a lot higher than people who don't talk about these things all the time. But I find the level of behavior is not always that much higher. That's right. Um, and so committing to these things is one thing. Actually learning to do it is another thing. Yeah. Uh, and that, that requires just constant work and spiritual discipline, but also requires just knowledge of of how to do stuff like how do you how do you do a marriage well and some of that is just learning the tricks um there's a a great uh marriage therapist named john gottman who says when your spouse makes a bid to you so she might say um you know look at that lovely bird outside the window you have three choices you can make uh, an away bid which is you say can't you see i'm reading the paper or an apathetic bid, which means you don't respond at all, or a toward bid, a toward bid, which is you look at her, then you look at the beautiful bird outside the window, and you share that moment with her. And these are just a small little moment in an everyday life. But if you make five toward bids for every one away bid, you'll have a healthy marriage. Mm. If your life is filled with moving away in these smallest gestures, you're in trouble. Uh, And so there are lots of parts of life and a lot of what I do in the book is I've just read a lot of stuff on how to do these commitments well, and I try to pass along the wisdom, a great phrase which applies, I think, to all of us, which is, but especially writers, we're just beggars who try to tell other beggars where we found bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just try to pass along whatever kernels of wisdom that I found useful in my life. Yeah, I... Um well, let me just say I'm thankful uh, that you would pass those along. I've, I've, as I read your book, as I read about your own faith journey, I just thought it resonates. Uh, 
it resonated with me. And I think um, for for uh, just those who are listening to say um, that you're honest about it, I think you're honest about some of the struggles and the questions and all those kind of things that come up. But you're also there's a wisdom that comes from looking at other people who have done this well. And you do that in the book, too. And I just want to say, I think they're I mean, I think in this age of, of, I don't know, individuality and stratification and atomization, it's, I don't know if we've sort of lost the art of looking at others who have figured it out. Uh, uh, but it seems to me that we have. And so this book, uh, was an example of how to actually do that, to look at others and see how they figured it out. And then maybe you could talk for just a second about uh, the weavers and that organization, because that's, that's sort of in a sense, what, what you're doing, you're, you're illuminating maybe these people who have, who have figured it out. Could you talk about that for a second? Sure. Yeah. And that, the capacity of admiration is just, it's hard to do in this culture because you have to be humble to admire, to say, well, that person's really amazing and I've got a lot to learn from them. And the ego sort of doesn't want you to do that. Yeah. Uh, but the people I've admired most, and I've, I've founded this thing called Weave, the Social Fabric Project at the Aspen Institute. And we, we figure social disconnection, loneliness, is one of the big problems of our time. But all around the country, there are people solving it. And uh, we call these people weavers. They're just really great at relationship. They're really good at building community. And I've spent the last year or two just traveling around the country meeting the most amazing people you could ever have seen. And they're just so compelling. There's a woman named Aisha Butler, who was living in Chicago in a tough neighborhood called Englewood. And she was going to move out because it was dangerous. But on the day she was going to move out, she saw a little girl playing with broken bottles in the lot across the street in a little pink dress. And she turned to her husband and she said, we're not leaving. We're not going to be just another family who left. And so she Googled volunteer in Englewood. And um, she started volunteering. And one thing led to another. Now she runs the big community project there, trying to make places where kids can play. Another woman I met in Ohio had the worst thing happen to her that can happen. is yeah. Her husband killed their kids and, um, and himself. And she was filled with anger at him. And, but she said, you're not going to, if you want to ruin my life, you're not going to do it. I'm going to make a difference in the world. And now she helps other women who've suffered from violence. She has a free pharmacy. She, her life is given to service and, you know, we talk about agape and selfless love. These people are, are living embodiments of it. And they're just really great at relationship. They just really know how to connect with people and pour out their heart to people and receive. Um, and I've been so inspired being around them. I think you get changed when you're around people like that. Uh, they set a standard for you and a way of behaving that rubs off. And our job at Weave is to try to get more people to see these people and say, you know, I, I like my life. It might not be as heroic as those people, but I'd like it to be a little better than it is now, a little more giving. I'd like to have one friend who's totally unlike me. I'd like to have a barbecue for everybody in my block. I'd like to do something which is not about me, but is building up a community. Well, David, I certainly appreciate you taking the time uh, for this today, but also writing those those stories. Some of the stories that you just mentioned are heartbreaking in the way you explain them in detail it literally made me weep as I was reading through some of these stories and seeing them turn the corner uh, to want to serve and, and serve other people. And I can't tell you um, how much I enjoyed 
the book, how much I enjoy it. I was challenged by it and thinking about it, and much of it does align with, with, with much of what I've been taught growing up from the Word of God about what is true about humanity and, and how broken it is and how our need, uh, how there's a deep-seated need to get over ourselves in order to serve other people. We thank you so much for your insight, for your time, and for taking the time for the conversation with us today. Thank you. Oh, well, I'm grateful for those kind words, and I'm grateful for the attention and, and the care and, and for what you do, so I'm, I'm thank you. Hey, Adam, let's do a quick wrap-up here with just you and me. It's great getting to talk to David. It's great reading his book and learning about his insights. You know, he's a different stream maybe than what our people are used to hearing. It's not coming on as an evangelist or a pastor or a preacher. He's coming on as an author who, yes, he he is a great writer, and he is a, a clever thinker. He is insightful in the way he ways he describes things or thinks about our culture, but what for you, coming off that interview, what are the things that maybe you're thinking, hey, somebody listening might be wondering about this, or they might need to know contextually this? Yeah, I think it's just important to remember who he's writing for, and um, and, and he's a social commentator, right? Yeah. And so uh, I think it's important just to remember that aspect of it, um, that— He's not he's not writing a Christian book for a Christian audience, yeah. and so uh, I think he has certain goals and aims in the book. and And what we can do uh, is maybe fill in some of the gaps a little bit where he's talking about ideas like virtue, and where he's talking about ideas um, saying this could help the culture become better. Uh, you know, we can be more civilized with each other, and he's just talking about discourse and how to change discourse and culture in those pieces. Um, but uh, I think where we can sort of come around that is just say. Um, what he's really arguing for is a Christian ethic. That's really what he's arguing yeah. for, and, and and it's evident when you read the book. I think yeah. for any Christian, who it's reads not a overt, book, but it no, is evident. It's yeah. absolutely evident. And um, and I, you know, one thing I we've said it during the interview, but one thing I would say again is I really do believe he was incredibly vulnerable to talk about that. I mean, this is a man who works for the New York Times. He's already ostracized for being sort of a conservative writer in a sense, mm-hmm. um, but then to also <laughs> tell people, you know, I've found faith. Um, man, I can't imagine what that's done to his circle. Do you right. know? Yeah, well, that's one of the things in the interview that really stuck out to me is his vulnerability with us to talk about what it was like to receive hundreds of thousands of hate mails mm-hmm. based on his political views or his um, personal views. I can't imagine going through that. So it really, yeah. honestly, in me, uh, kind of pricked a little bit of uh, empathy and sympathy yeah. for a man that does have to put up with a lot of uh, pushback in a way that you and yeah. I probably never will. Yeah. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on the website. Today's episode was produced by David Rorick and edited and mixed by Chris Starrett. If you like Culture Matters, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time, and God bless.